Welcome to those of you who are listening to us by podcast. By the way, Dana and the band, thank you guys very much. You guys do a wonderful job every week. And we are honored, honored to have you guys lead us in worship. Um, we're in the second week of a series that's a little unusual for us. If you're new to our church, just want you to know that. This series is called City Church at the Movies, and we're looking at four movies that were nominated at the Oscars this past year for Best Picture. We looked last week at Dallas Buyers Club. This week, we're going to look at 12 Years a Slave. Next week, we'll look at Philomena. And then the week after that, we'll look at the movie Nebraska. And what we're looking for in each of these movies are the places where art and the gospel intersect. I think that a city church is going to be the kind of church that brings spiritual and social and cultural renewal to the city of Evansville and beyond. We have to be engaged with our culture. We can't cordon ourselves off from our culture. And I I, want to just mention for those of you who are new that some of the themes that we're going to talk about today may be more intense than you want your uh, children exposed to, and if that's the case, feel free. This would be the perfect time to get up and take your kids downstairs to our city kids ministry, and that would be perfectly fine with us. Um, because I know that many of you are in and out on a on a weekly basis, I just want to quickly review something that we said uh, last week. We talked last week about the fact that uh, throughout history, the church has had a very inconsistent relationship with the arts. Sometimes the relationship between the church and the arts has been very good, and sometimes it's been very bad. And when it's bad, Not only do artists suffer, but the church suffers as well. And I said that there are three reasons for that. The first is that creativity is an expression of the image of God. And we said that when we eliminate the arts from our ministry, we eliminate a whole dimension of the nature of God and the way that he reveals himself to us. We said also that arts are a stealth way into people's souls. Uh, In other words, that often the arts allow people to consider matters of eternity in a way that they were never willing to before. Their barriers of resistance come down in the face of the arts. And when we eliminate the arts, we remove a very effective method of communicating the gospel to people. And then third, we said that our artists are often the barometers of society. And that by analyzing their ideas and the worldviews that are embedded in their arts, we can uh, in their art that shape their art, we can get a much clearer sense of what the larger culture is thinking and why the culture is thinking that and how the culture views reality. And so this is an important series. Really think it's an important series for us as a church. And today we're going to talk about uh, what I think is a very important movie and one that may be spoken of for many, many years to come in American culture. And it's the movie 12 Years a Slave. And I want you to just watch the trailer for the movie 12 Years a Slave. I want to ask you what part of the country you come from. I originate from Canada. I guess where that is. Well, I know where Canada is. I've been there myself. Well, travel for a slave. Solomon Northup is an expert player on the violin. I was born a free man. Lived with my family in New York. Be good for your mother. Until the day I was deceived. To Solomon. Kidnapped. Sold into slavery. Well, boy, how you feel now? My name is Solomon Northup. I'm a free man. And you have no right whatsoever to detain me. You're no free man. 
You're nothing but a Georgia runaway. Went down to the river Jordan. And that servant that don't obey his lord shall be beaten with many stripes. That's scripture. The condition of your laborers, it's all wrong. They're my property. You say that with pride. I say it as fact. Speak! Man does how he pleases with his property. You come here. I say come here! Days ago, I was with my family in my home. Now you tell me all is lost. If you want to survive, do and say as little as possible. Well, I don't want to survive. I want to live. You know something. I did as instructed. There's something wrong. It's wrong with the instruction. Master bought you here to work. Anymore, I'll earn you a hundred lashes. I know what it's like to be the object of Master's lash. In his own time, good Lord will manage them all. I will survive. I will not fall into despair. I will keep myself hardy till freedom is opportunity. One of the reviews that I read uh, as I was doing research for this movie began with a line that I could not agree with more. The writer said this. He said, I'd be skeptical of any review of 12 Years a Slave that does not begin and end with, Lord have mercy on us. 12 Years a Slave is based on the true story uh, of, it's an 1853 autobiography of a man by the name of Solomon Northup, a legally free black man living in Saratoga, New York. At the beginning of the movie, he kisses his wife and his two children goodbye for what they think will be a three-week separation that turns out to be 12 years of slavery. Northup is well-educated. He is sophisticated. He is an expert violinist, and he travels to Washington, D.C. to work for two white men who need a violin player. After paying him, they drug him, and they sell him to a slave pen owner. One minute Solomon Northup is a free man, the next minute he is in shackles, he is thrown into a paddle boat, and he is headed south to Louisiana, away from freedom, away from dignity, away from his family, and toward 12 years of brutal, dehumanizing slavery. 12 Years a Slave won the Academy Award this year for Best Picture. And I will tell you that while I'm certainly not a film critic in any way, it escapes me how Chiwetel Ejiofor did not win Best Actor and how Michael Fassbender did not win Best Supporting Actor. Both of their performances were powerful performances. Lupita Nyong'o did win for Best Supporting Actress uh, for her role as a slave named Patsy. Besides the brilliant performances uh, of the actors, I think the stunning work of the director, Steve McQueen, uh, is part of what made this movie so unforgettable. Um, McQueen doesn't necessarily show you things about slavery that you didn't already know, but the way that he shoots the movie causes you to comprehend what you already know about slavery 
at a deeper and more primal level. There are numerous points in the movie where you get what's happening in the scene, and you're, you're ready. In fact, most uh, directors at that point would cut away to something else, but McQueen doesn't. Even though you're ready to look away, the camera doesn't look away. It stays on the scene. Because even though you think you've got it, even though you think you know what's happening in this particular scene, you really don't get it. Because understand, it's the duration and the severity and the endurance that bring an understanding that facts alone can't possibly convey. As with the movie Dallas Buyers Club, I watched this movie uh, twice in preparation for this, but I will tell you the second time was way more difficult. The first time, you know, I didn't really have any idea what to expect. I didn't know what was coming. But in the second time, I knew what was coming. And I had to come to grips with the capacity for the evil that is within the human soul as I watched it the second time. And... Maybe it's uncoincidental. I, I, I don't know. But what's fascinating is that we are reminded, even in the events in the news in the past couple weeks, that the heart of this, the heart of human slavery, the heart of racism is still very present in America and in the world that we live in. Think about the shameful comments of the owner of the Los Angeles Clippers just in the past couple weeks. Um, Just two weeks ago, 200 Nigerian schoolgirls were kidnapped and sold as slave wives for as little as $12 per girl. I read this past week that it is conservatively estimated that there are 27 million slaves in the world today. Racism and slavery are very real in our world today, and even if slavery is no longer legal in America, racism is still very real here in America, and even in this city, and perhaps even in the attitudes of people within our own church. I wanna, what I want to do this morning is I want to share with you three points at which I think this movie and the gospel intersect. And I want to make sure that you guys understand that, you know, I, I'm not starting with the movie and moving toward the Bible. It may seem that way chronologically in the way that I preach this, but I always start with the Bible and then look at the movie to see where the movie intersects with the Bible. You understand that the source of all of truth is the Scriptures. It's not movies. It's not anything else. It's the Scriptures. And so that's where we start. Here's the first place that I felt like that the movie and the gospel intersect, and that is the indifference to personal and societal injustice is a grave evil. Uh, Let me say that again. Indifference to personal and societal injustice is a grave evil. The shame of human slavery and uh, later segregation in this country um, it didn't happen just by force. It was allowed to happen by a perverse societal indifference. You understand that? It wasn't just circumstantial. It was societal. And then there, there, there is this old saying that many of you are familiar with. It's, it's, it's been around for a long time. It's certainly not new to me. But boy, does it fit here. That all it takes for evil to flourish 
is for good men to do what? Nothing. Edmund Burke. It's clear in this movie, 12 Years a Slave, in fact, it's a very prominent theme in this movie, that Christianity was in many ways complicit with the slavery system. Now, no doubt, there are positive examples of Christians uh, throughout history who have worked hard against the buying and selling and owning of human beings. But it is also true that certain segments of Christianity have had a checkered past with respect to slavery. Uh, One of the slave owners in this movie uh, uses the Bible to justify slavery, and in particular, his harsh treatment of his slaves. There's another slave owner in the movie who preaches a sermon over the sobbing of a mother who had been separated from her children, and then he has her killed because of her depression and her sobbing over that. There's no question that Christianity was often wrongly used to support slavery, which is evil in and of itself. But there's also no question that some parts of Christianity were also guilty of evil in their indifference to slavery. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a pastor and ultimately a martyr in Germany during the rise of Adolf Hitler and uh, the Nazi party. Bonhoeffer was grieved by the injustice of the Nazi persecution of the Jews, and he was grieved by the indifference of the church in Germany, and he once wrote about that. He said this, he said, Silence in the face of evil is itself evil. God will not hold us guiltless. Not to act is to act. You see, the the church is the light of the world. When when sin seeks the destruction of God's creation, uh, that's evil. And the church is is called to respond, to act, to engage in spiritual warfare. And Ephesians 6 says to stand against the schemes of the devil. Love isn't passive. Uh, Think about, think think this. Think, Think Christ in the temple when he walks in and he sees how the religious system in Israel had been perverted in such a way that it made it impossible for the poor to offer sacrifices to worship uh, their God. Listen to how John describes this in John chapter 2, verse 15. He He says that Jesus made a whip out of cords, and he drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers, and he overturned their tables. This is anger. Uh, This is a holy rage that Jesus is in. This is not indifference. Love is courageous. Love gets involved. Love gets angry at injustice. When was the last time that you were enraged at injustice? When was the last time that you were willing to put yourself and your reputation and maybe your safety and even your finances perhaps on the line because of it? When was the last time that you were so enraged at injustice that you would be willing to do that? Let me ask you a question. How do you measure? How do you believe spiritual maturity ought to be measured? A friend of mine sent me this uh, quote. It comes from a pastor in New York City uh, by the name of Tim Keller. And he, and he wrote this. I, I, I love what he has to say. He says, A deep social conscience and a life poured out in service to others is the inevitable sign of real faith in Christ. 
Whoa, a deep social conscience, a life poured out in service to others. What about the things that we normally major in in the local church? How about not drinking or not dancing? How about finding another new Bible study to attend? How about not going to movies? How about complaining to your church leaders about the songs that the worship leaders sang? How about sending nasty letters to your pastor about his clothes? Now that doesn't happen in this church, but I know in some churches that I have been a part of, it does. And in some churches, that seems to be the sign of spiritual maturity, those kinds of things. And Tim Keller says, no, it's a deep social conscience. That's the sign of real faith in Christ. It's a life poured out in service to others. That's a sign of deep faith in Christ. And when we say that we want to bring spiritual, social, and cultural renewal to the city of Evansville, what we're saying is that we believe we have a responsibility as a church to dismantle systems of oppression while fostering our commitment to racial reconciliation. Yes, racial reconciliation here in the city of Evansville. We haven't been placed here by God. I don't believe that we've been placed as a church right smack in the middle of downtown to create Christian world. I don't think we've been put here to uh, isolate ourselves from the community and ignore the issues of the city while we amuse ourselves in Christian fun. I think we've been put here to make a difference. We've been put here to represent Jesus Christ. And that includes dismantling systems of oppression, responding to and engaging in places that we see injustice happening. Now, there are things that we can do as a church, but I also want you to understand that there are things that you can do as an individual. Where do you see personal or societal injustice in your corner of the world? Where do you see it? I realize that you can't free 27 million slaves by yourself. I realize that. I realize that you can't go and find 200 Nigerian schoolgirls and rescue them. I get that. But could you foster racial reconciliation at your workplace, let's say? Could you step in, students, could you step in at school where some group is bullying someone, either physically or by social media? Could you step in? Could you read your paper or watch the news and pray for some societal injustice that you are aware of, that you see? In other words, you can involve yourself at whatever level you can involve yourself. Could you do that? Don't be indifferent. Because indifference to personal and societal injustice is a grave evil. I, I walk, that's what I walked away with from this movie. And I know that that intersects with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here's a second thing that I want you to get. A second place that I see the gospel and the, this movie intersecting. And I just worded it this way. Here's what I said. What soul-destroying rationalizations we are willing to make in pursuit of money. Let me say that one more time. What soul-destroying rationalizations we are willing to make in pursuit of money. 
One of the things that's very clear in this movie, and of course anybody that has studied history knows this, that slavery was the very foundation of an entire economic culture. It was one in which a civilization was built and sustained. And it required people to be kept and moved and treated worse than animals. Because there's a spirit and a soul in human beings that must be dehumanized for the system to keep on working, you see. One of the slave owners in the movie is played by an actor by the name of Benedict Cumberbatch. He seems, he seems to genuinely wrestle internally with slavery. And he even seems to care for the main uh, uh, character in the movie, uh, Solomon Northam. I just want to remind you, this is a true story, okay? Just, when I say the main character in the movie, I'm not, I'm not talking about a fictional character. I'm talking about this is a true story. Just make sure you get that. He seems to care for Solomon Northup. He even comes in at one point and he stops uh, one of the people on the plantation that was attempting to hang Northup. And he, he brings him into his house and he even grabs a gun to protect him. But in a very telling moment, Northup is laying on the floor of his house and recovering from this horrible torture that he had just been through. And he tells this slave owner, he tells him that legally he's a free man. He says, I'm a free man. The slave owner says, and this is very telling, no matter how much he may have wrestled internally with slavery, he says, I can't hear that. And he tells Northup that he has sold him to another slave owner because he's in financial debt. And you see, that's why he couldn't hear it. You're my way out of debt. I chilled at that scene, maybe more than any other scene in the movie, because I found myself wondering, if I lived in a culture whose entire economic system was based on injustice, and I had profited from that, and then one day woke up and realized its injustice, would I be willing to make any sacrifice necessary to right my wrongs? Would I sacrifice my income? Would I sacrifice my kids' college educations? Or how about my vacations in Colorado? Or my retirement? The family's estate that, we, that I may have inherited if I lived in that culture. Would I be willing to sacrifice anything to right my wrongs. There's a writer, uh, one of the Gospels in the New Testament, Gospel is called the Gospel of Luke, and the writer was a man by the name of Luke. He tells this story. Some of you may remember this. If you grew up going to Sunday school, you may remember this story. It's about a guy by the name of Zacchaeus. Remember Zacchaeus? A wee little man was he. You remember that? Okay. Zacchaeus made his money as a crooked tax collector. 
And once he meets Christ, he says here, Luke chapter 19, he says, Zacchaeus stood up and he said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I'll pay back four times the amount. But there is this other guy that John tells us about. He was kind of a wealthy hipster. And he comes to Jesus in the middle of the night so that no one can see him. It won't ruin his reputation. And he has a few theological questions that he wants to ask Jesus. But Jesus knows what's really in the man's heart. And so Jesus just cuts to the chase at one point, And he tells him, he tells him, he says, you know, sell all your possessions and give them to the poor. The text says in Mark chapter 10, verse 22, at this the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. And I wonder which... Which of those two would I have been? If I lived in a culture like that where the whole economic system was based on an injustice and I finally came to realize how unjust it was, would I be willing to be like the former Zacchaeus or would I be like this rich young hipster? Which one would I be? And I think it's a question for you to ask yourself. What, what soul-destroying rationalizations have you made for money? I've known men who stayed in jobs that they hated for a lifetime because their lifestyle depended upon it. It wasn't just because they had to, they had to have an income. It was because they had built a lifestyle that depended upon it and they hated what they did for a living, but they kept on doing it. Oh, what soul-destroying rationalizations we will make in the pursuit of money. I've known women who stripped or otherwise degraded themselves for college tuition. People who have rationalized working for doctors who perform abortions. People who hired immigrant labor because it was cheap labor. You need to know that in the case of slavery or any other rationalization that you would make for money, that what it does is it slowly chips away at your humanity. You know, get this. It doesn't blast your humanity to smithereens, the first compromise that you make, the first rationalization that you make. It doesn't blast away at your character or your humanity. It just slowly chips away at it. Until you might even realize one day that you're no longer really even human. There is this great line in the movie in which one man says this uh, in the context of slavery. And I I put it up here on the screens because uh, I thought it was such a good quote. I wanted wanted you to see it. Can you go ahead and put it up there? Or did I not put it up there on the screen because I thought it was such a great quote that uh, I wanted you to see it? Well, he says this. He says that no man can take a whip to another man on a daily basis without it eating away at his conscience. And then he says, he says that if you don't let it eat away at your conscience, the only way to do that is to find some way 
to keep the guilt from trampling over you. And for him, it was alcoholism. This man had become an alcoholic as a result. Oh, the rationalizations that we're willing to make in the pursuit of money. I'm out of time. There's so much more that I could say about this movie, but I, I want to com- conclude with this, this point, and this is what I really walked away with. Humanity needs a savior. Humanity needs a savior. Lord, have mercy upon us. If you have never believed in the doctrine of the depravity of man, you only need to see this movie and to see what evil men and women can do to other men and women. Unless the Lord have mercy upon us, I shudder to think what our world would look like. In this movie, everyone needs a Savior. Slaves needed a Savior. Uh, The slave owners desperately needed a Savior. Solomon Northup needed a savior. And just here's a spoiler alert. If you haven't seen the movie, just I'm going to tell you, here's the spoiler. He finds a savior in a character named Bass, who is played by Brad Pitt. Bass recognizes the wrongness of slavery, and he speaks out against slavery. And at this point, point in the movie, Northup asks him to uh, deliver a letter on his behalf that could free him. Bass expresses his fear, fear that it, the, the, the fear that he has personally over doing this, but he courageously agrees to do it. And then, then he says this, he says, my life doesn't mean much to anyone. That's, this is what Bass says. He says, He says to Northup, he says, My life doesn't mean much to anyone. It seems yours might mean a lot to a lot of people. You know, as despicable and disgraceful and dehumanizing as human slavery is, there is actually another kind of slavery. And realize that I don't say this uh, uh, callously, and I don't say it carelessly. There is another kind of slavery that is even worse, and that is spiritual slavery. In the book of Galatians, the Apostle Paul uh, writes about this kind of slavery. He says that that before, before we knew God, that we, all of us, before you come to know God, that you were slaves to sin and death. And as I was thinking about Bass's comments, you know, when he says, my life doesn't mean much to anyone, it seems that yours might mean a lot to a lot of people. I was thinking about how different our Savior is from Bass. Our Savior's life meant a great deal to everyone who mattered. Our Savior's death meant everything. He was the Prince of Heaven. He is the King of Kings. He was seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. He sustained the universe, the book of Colossians says. And yet, our Savior, Jesus Christ, courageously and at great expense to himself, gave his own life 
suffering not only the brutal punishment at the hands of men, but he suffered an even greater cosmic aloneness and separation from the Father that he had never before known to pay a ransom for us and in so doing freed us from slavery to sin and death. And because of him, because of our Savior, we are free. He who mattered everything to the universe gave his life for me who mattered really, relatively speaking, little to anyone but him, Jesus Christ. This morning as we take communion, we're going to do that here in just a moment. I want, I want to focus your mind on two things as, as we take communion. I want you to focus your mind first on this. That Christ wasn't passive about the human predicament. He gave his body and he shed his blood for my sins. And so as you take communion this morning, think about that. Think about what that cup and what that bread represents. And ask yourself, is there anything that I'm being passive about that I see in my relational world that I need to stop being passive about? Christ wasn't passive. And here's the second thing I want you to focus on. I want you to focus on giving thanks to Jesus who freed us from the worst possible kind of slavery, slavery to sin and death, and that because of him, we are free. Would you bow your heads with me? And the ushers are going to come up and in just a moment, they're going to pass out the elements. And when you receive them, if you would, just hold them in your hand. They're, they come together, actually. There's a cup, and then there's a piece of bread on top of it. Just, just hold them, because I want us to take them together. But I want to just say a word of prayer. Now, I want to ask you to focus your attention for just a few moments on Christ our Savior. Lord Jesus Christ, as we come away from a movie that is so powerful, we recognize that the evil that was represented in that movie, is the capacity for that is also in every one of us. And Lord Jesus, we recognize that apart from you having mercy upon us, our world would be devastatingly painful, even more so than it is. It would be a horror every day. We thank you for your presence in the world. And Lord, we recognize that we are called upon to be uh, your presence in the world, to be your hands and your feet. Lord, forgive us for the times that we have been so self-consumed that we don't respond to, that we're indifferent to societal injustice. Forgive us for the rationalizations that we are that we routinely make in the pursuit of money. Forgive me, O oh Lord. Lord, would you transform us as a church into a place, into a people that are willing to respond, that we will not be passive. Make us not passive to personal or societal injustice, to be just like you, to be willing to give anything and everything to right what's wrong. And Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have freed us 
from slavery. It's in your name, Lord Jesus Christ, that we worship and pray. Amen.